0: Welcome to the Life Christian Church podcast, where our mission is to inspire people to the life God dreams for them as we spread his love in ever-widening circles. Welcome to all of you joining us in our online campus. Glad you're here as well, wherever you're watching from. Excited about what's going on with our online campus. And if we haven't met, my name's Terry Smith. Uh, I have the great privilege of being the lead pastor here. And um, I've been doing that for, uh, I think, two weeks shy of 30 years. So I've I've been here a while. Um, And uh, today I'm going to continue this series that we've been in uh, where we are seeking for wisdom. And uh, I'll begin with Brene Brown. Uh, the shame researcher and author telling a simple story about being at uh, a global leadership event for Costco of all places. And she said she was sitting at a table in the front row getting ready to speak, and the Costco CEO was taking questions from Costco's top leaders. And uh, she said the questions were tough and seemed to just keep getting tougher. But his responses back were just as tough and and maybe even tougher because he just kept speaking truth. Instead of saying what it appeared people wanted to hear, he instead told them what, in fact, he was thinking and why certain decisions had been made and... You know, Brene Brown said she started to get nervous, thinking she had to follow this, that everybody there would be angry. But she said that, that after that very challenging exchange, uh, when he finished, everyone in the room jumped to their feet and started applauding and cheering. And Brene Brown was surprised and looked at the woman beside her and said, uh, what just happened? I, I, I thought that was a very difficult exchange. And and this woman looked at Brene Brown and said, at Costco, we clap for the truth. And I thought that was pretty cool. I don't know a whole lot about Costco. I avoid it at all cost, (laughs) which is not what I think Costco means. But um, at Costco, they clap for the truth. I wonder, are we the kind of people who clap for the truth even when the truth challenges us in some significant way. About how this original painting was designed by Rembrandt to be uh, nearly 14 feet wide and 12 feet high, but that it was damaged when it was moved from one location to another in, I think, 1715, because uh, the people who moved it wanted it to fit on a particular wall, and it didn't fit, and so, they decided that they would just cut pieces off. And you see uh, behind me, uh, 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 there, there's actually, someone actually painted a, a, a copy of Rembrandt's masterpiece in a much smaller, on a much smaller canvas that gives us a sense of what he actually wanted in the beginning. And, and you, you see the pieces behind us, everything outside the lines was just cut off f- from the original so that these people could make the masterpiece fit on their wall. And uh, I made the point last week, and I'll make it again very briefly, it doesn't seem to have been the smartest decision, considering that this uh, masterpiece is now valued at over $500 million. Um, It just doesn't seem like you just cut and tear, does it? So, So you could make it fit what you want. It seems like even if you had to tear the whole house down, in, in order to rebuild the house to have a wall sufficient for the painting, you'd still be, you know, even with a really nice house, $499 million ahead of the game, and you would have preserved one of the great uh, artistic works in history. So, with that in mind, I, I talked about how that when we study Proverbs, wisdom shows up. And wisdom personified uh, at Some points as a woman we called Lady Wisdom last week talked about how that she was with God when God created the world uh, and that she describes herself as the artisan at his side and that he created the world with her and through her. And we discussed how, though, that's true, that since the very beginning, human beings have been trying to fit the way God designed the world into their sense of how things should be and have done great damage to God's original design. Proverbs 8.22 has wisdom saying this, The Lord formed me from the beginning before he created anything else, I was born before he had made the earth. I was there when he established the heavens, when he drew the horizon on the oceans. I was there when he set the clouds above, when he established the springs deep in the earth. I was there when he set the limits of the seas so they would not spread beyond their boundaries. And when he marked off the earth's foundations... I was the architect at his side. Another translation says master craftsman. Another one says artisan. In other words, I was there, uh, his constant delight, rejoicing always in his presence when he designed and created the world and how happy I was with the world he created, how I rejoice with a human family. Wisdom essentially then takes this approach in Proverbs. Wisdom says, I can tell you how God designed the world to work. I can tell you what he intended. The world is his masterpiece. I was there when he made it. And if you'll listen to me, you can live life the way it was meant to be lived. When we do damage to God's design, this is called foolishness. When we live according to God's design, this is called wisdom. And so I've defined wisdom in this series, or what I'm calling ultimate wisdom, as understanding how God designed the world to work. So here's the question. If you're honest, is there any way that you have attempted or are attempting to force God's masterpiece into your reality? Have you tried to get God to fit into how you think life should be? Or have you designed your life? Are you designing your life to fit into His design? If you start cutting away little pieces here and there of God's design, you do great damage to God's desire for you to live your best possible life and to recreate God's best possible world. All of us have to make a decision whether we're going to live his way or live our way, and that has been the great human dilemma since the very beginning. It is a fundamentally important decision. One is foolish. The other is wise. Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. He describes himself here, uh, he's talking about uh, the great scope of human history and and prophecy and so on, but uh, part of what he does here is he describes himself as a stone, as a rock if you please. I think other translations has it as a rock. He says, if you, he says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken but on whomever it falls, they will be grinded to, pass, to powder. In other words, when you decide to fall on the rock, when you decide to, if you please, do it God's way, you will be broken. But you're broken in the same way, let's say, uh, a doctor may break, Someone's leg in order to reset it properly. Um, you're, you're, you're broken so you can be repaired. You're broken so you can be fixed. You're broken so you can be put together. What does it mean to be broken? It means that you're giving up your own way, your own idea, your own sense of how life should work. You're saying, I'm all in. I, I, whatever you say to me, God, difficult as it may be, I clap for the truth. I'm falling on the rock. When you fall on the rock, you'll be broken. But when the rock falls on you, in other words, if you don't fall on the rock, Jesus says, the rock's going to fall on you and you're going to be ground. In other words, it's not like God's saying that for the sake of punishment. He's just saying, I design life to work a certain way. Give up on your own way of things. Fall on me. Trust in me. Or life's not going to work very well for you. You fall on the rock or the rock can fall on you. So wisdom wisdom is living God's way. Foolishness is living our way. And as I already said, this has been true since the very beginning. But the good news, of course, is that wisdom calls to those of us who are willing to receive truth. Those of us who are teachable. Wisdom calls to those of us who clap for the truth. Wisdom seems to have two primary audiences in the book of Proverbs, the wise and the simple. The wise and the simple. Those who are truly wise know that they need to keep on learning. Those who are simple, as you study Proverbs, though they're derided in oft times, are teachable and Wisdom seems to be calling to those who are smart enough to know they need to learn and to those who are simple enough to to be teachable. Proverbs 1.5, wisdom shouts in the public square, let the wise listen and add to their learning. Wisdom calls aloud. How long will you who are simple love your simple ways? How long will mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge? Repent at my rebuke. Then I will pour out my thoughts to you. I will make known to you my teachings. Again, when you study Proverbs, you learn that those who are simple are inexperienced, maybe even naive, but they're malleable. They are open to both foolishness and wisdom. And Lady Folly makes a play for them in Proverbs 9, and Lady Wisdom makes a play for them as well. They, they are inclined, the simple are inclined to evil, as all of us are, and inclined to great good, as all of us are. It's all a decision as to whether or not they listen to wisdom or listen to folly. But wisdom says, if you'll listen to me, I'll give you my thoughts. I'll make the simple wise." and I'll make the wise wiser. Now, when you read Proverbs, you learn that there are other categories of people who wisdom's just kind of given up on them. They're called the mockers, or in some translations, the scoffers, and the fools. Uh, The mocker thinks that he knows everything already. A fool just won't listen. These are people who've already made up their minds. And the Proverbs tell us that to try to correct a mocker or a fool is a waste of time. But the simple, someone who's just open and willing to listen, has a chance. Because they can receive correction. They can repent of doing life their way. They can fall on the rock, if you please. They can become wise. Proverbs 9, wisdom has built her house. And she calls from the highest point of the city. Let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, come eat my food and drink the wine I have mixed. I mean, I like this. Because I I have to admit, there are times when I know that I really don't have good sense. But wisdom says that's okay, because I'm inviting you to come, and I'm going to help you. Leave your simple ways, and you will live. Whoever corrects a mocker invites insults. Whoever rebukes the wicked incurs abuse. Those people don't clap for the truth. They don't want to hear it. They already know what they need to know, at least in their own minds. And they are people upon whom at some point the rock falls and it grinds them to powder. Instruct the wise and they will be wiser still. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For through wisdom your days will be many, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, your wisdom will reward you. If you are a mocker, you alone will suffer. So the simple, if they clap for the truth, have the possibility of becoming wise and receiving the benefits of wisdom. So I'm challenging us all to clap for the truth. So the, the good news continues with this, that when we live life according to God's design, it brings us well-being. You might notice at the, at the end of the passage that I just read where you know this invitation is given to the simple and the mockers and fools are discounted that the passage closes as is so common throughout Proverbs with this promise of what I think could best be described as well-being to the person who lives life God's way. Well-being has to do with holistic wellness. Well-being has to do with what is ultimately good for a person. Well-being has to do with what is truly in a person's self-interest. And I want to get at this during uh, the rest of today's talk by teaching through a section of Proverbs that encapsulates much of what Proverbs teaches about well being. So, what have I tried to say so far today? I've tried to say so far today that when we will simply receive truth, when we'll respond to it, when we'll try to design our lives accordingly, then. Proverbs offers us a great probability of living a life of well-being. Now, in the first week of this uh, series, I kind of introduced wisdom from Proverbs chapter 1. Week two, I introduced Lady Wisdom, who shows up in Proverbs 2 and chapters 8 and 9. Over the next couple of weeks now, I want to focus on a section from Proverbs chapter 3, Proverbs 3, verses 1 through 10. And I'll hopefully today get through the first six verses. And then next week, deal with the next two. And here's what this section says. I want you to notice, let me show you how this is organized. You'll see it pretty quickly. The first verse, the the odd verse, offers a wise instruction, a truth that we need to submit to. The second verse, or the even verse, offers us a glimpse of the well-being we can experience. And that's how this whole section, Proverbs 3, 1 through 10, is organized. My son, do not forget my teaching... But keep my commands in your heart. That's the wise instruction. Here's the promise of well-being, verse 2. For they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. Wise instruction, verse 3. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Well-being promise. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. It continues that way. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine." So this section is written as much, as, Prover- as much of Proverbs is as advice from parents to their son. And I want us to hear this, as, as I think we're intended to hear this, as, as a loving father, God the Father, speaking to his beloved children. And we should hear the voice of God through this, speaking to us about how to live wisely. So let's let's get at it this way. Three wise instructions and three ways wisdom brings well-being. There are actually five of these sections in what I just read, but again, uh, pardon me spending too much time on the sausage making, but I'll deal with three of them today and by God's grace, two of them next week. Hope all you folks watching online are doing well and uh, That you've not fallen asleep on your couch, but that you're at the edge of the couch and that you've downloaded the life notes and you're taking notes and you're on your third cup of coffee because you're so excited about what I'm saying. All right, when you clap for the truth, don't spill the coffee. Here's the first wise instruction and a way wisdom brings well being do what God says, live a life of peace and prosperity. Proverbs 3, 1 and 2. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my, note this word, commands in your heart. For they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. So let's deal with the wise instruction part for a little while. We're told not to forget the teaching. And to we we it's obvious on its face that to not forget the means to remember. We are to remember God's teaching. And as Tremper Longman writes in his commentary on Proverbs, to remember something in the Old Testament means more than cognitive retention. To remember or not to forget means to obey. So to not forget God's teaching means to do what was taught And in fact, these are framed in terms of commands. It's assumed that what is uh, commanded or what the father and mother are teaching their child and calling commandments are based on the commandments found in the Torah, Uh, the Pentateuchal commandments, the commandments that are found in the first five books of of the Old Testament, or for them, what was their Bible. This is, when we're speaking in terms of commands, this is clearly what would have been in their minds. Commands, let's say, like the Ten Commandments. When you start talking about how God designed the world, there are certain things that he designed into it that he, because he loves us, commanded us to live by. Uh, and you, you'll note that the that the Father doesn't say to the Son here, "Please remember my suggestions." He says, "Remember my teachings and keep the commandments." In Hebrew scripture, to remember meant to obey. Now, some of us are happy, more than happy, to receive instructions, particularly as it concerns. Our relationship with God and His Word and His church, we're more than happy. Uh, you can only imagine the thousands of ways I've heard people say nice things about things that I teach on a Sunday. Uh, and everyone seems to be pretty happy to receive, you know, three principles to live by. I enjoyed the energy of the talk. Th- essentially, thank you for the suggestions. See you next Sunday. But I don't think I've ever yet had anyone say, thank you for the commandments. We're more than happy to clap for the suggestions, but not as happy to clap for the commandments. I'm not talking about my commandments. I'm talking about God's commandments. Because even and especially in the context of the New Testament, we are supposed to obey God's commandments. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 7. He said this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7. It starts with the Beatitudes just to locate you, reminds you of where it's at. And he gives these amazing, almost impossible to keep, commandments that of course are based on the Torah, because that was their Bible. That was what was informing his thinking and teaching as he's teaching, and uh, he not only gives these commandments, but but and, and speaks in terms of see when you when you think again about. As I taught last week about Genesis, you think about those first five books of Scripture. We're talking about foundation truth. We're talking about fundamental design. We're talking about the way God made life to work. When you read the Ten Commandments, you don't have God. You know, those aren't throwaway comments. These are fundamental to how he designed the world. And and Jesus says at the end of the Sermon of the Mount, he said, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Now, what are, what are the teachings that they're supposed to practice? Well, he's, again, he's, he, he's coming to the altar call of the Sermon on the Mount, and this is his next step portion. He says, now go do what I said. What, what, what kind of things does he say? Well, we go all the way back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, um, and you read passages like this. He, he begins the Sermon on the Mount with the, the story of the Beatitudes, and then I think he goes into the salt of the earth and light of the world, peace, if I remember right. And then there's this next fundamentally important passage where he says, Matthew five seventeen, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Listen, guys, I, I I I hope I'm not running too hot this morning. I didn't intend to get into this kind of thing when I was thinking about teaching Proverbs. But as I actually spent about six weeks intensely studying Proverbs, the more I kept coming back to this idea that wisdom is about... it. Well, it, it, over and over and over again, we're told in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's acknowledging God. It's doing what he says. That's what wisdom is. And so I, I didn't, you know, when we planned this three months ago, I didn't think I'd do a sermon about commandments, but but I'm reading here in Proverbs and, and and he says, you know, remember my teachings, keep the commands. What's he talking about? Well, the commands are the commands. And And see, what happens is a lot of Christ followers don't think, they don't think that Jesus spoke in terms of commands. And the fact is, you're just wrong. Or we're just wrong if we think that. Because he did. In fact, here's what he says, beginning of the Sermon of the Mount. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly this is Jesus talking, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes into this long uh, peroration I'm not sure if I'm using that word correctly right there, but I like that word. I'm glad it came out of my mouth. He goes it in this long dialogue where he offers these incredibly difficult commands that are more, so, so he basically, he'll take a command, part of what he does, he takes a command in the Old Testament or something that's true in the Pentateuch or the Torah and he ups the ante. He says, that's what that says, but hear what I say. And what, what are some of the things he says? He says, for instance, um, he says to hate a brother is to commit murder. And he says that we must reconcile with brothers and sisters who are offended at us. So one of the commands in the, uh, in, in, of the Ten Commandments is um, uh, thou shalt not kill, right? Um, it's best translated, thou shalt not murder. Or... Uh, every Bible commentator will say, it's you, you do not take innocent life. This is one of the commands. By the way, when we think about the Old Testament law, um, we think about the Old Testament law in three ways. We think about the civil law, which has to do with the law that concerned organizing the nation of Israel. That is no longer relevant today. We think about the religious law, which had to do with how Judaism was to be practiced. Jesus came, as he said here in Matthew 5, and he fulfilled the law in himself. So, for instance, the sacrificial system, he became the one sacrifice offered f- for all. But then, there, so, so we don't think in terms of, of that, uh, except in typology. But then there's the moral law. And the moral law, which we begin to be taught in the very beginning of Genesis in terms of how God designed the world to work, has not been done away with. In fact, the, the, the ante has been upped. We are held to, Jesus said, a higher standard than those who just keep the law. So, so you know, th- thou, thou shalt not take innocent life. We, we need to think about what that means in terms of today's world and how that gets applied into the way people want to design the world and what it means to take innocent life. I'm going to leave that there for now. But I'm going to say Jesus comes along and he even makes it more difficult. He says you're not only judged because you take an innocent life, but now murder begins in your heart because the person who hates their brother has committed murder in their heart and so Jesus says, thou shalt not kill, I'm going to take that and I'm going to raise it. And then he turns around and he says, uh, the next thing he teaches is uh, that to lust is to commit adultery in our heart. What's the commandment say? The, 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 the 10 commandments say thou shalt not commit adultery, right? Everybody agrees? Well, did Jesus do away with that? Because he was so nice, he didn't have commandments? No. He said, I'm going to take that commandment and I'm going to raise it one. It's not just if you commit the act of adultery, it's if you lust when you... He's talking, he talks to men. I wish he wouldn't have said it so directly, frankly. But when you lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. Well, is that, is that command of Jesus easier? Or, well, I'll testify much more difficult... Uh, the, the 10 commandment I, I, I've, I've done, well, I have a perfect record in that area. The Jesus application of the 10 commandment, I would just say, Jesus, help me. Thank you for forgiveness of sins. Do, Do you get the point? Jesus is saying, keep my commandments. And he's not like he's saying, Hey, Christians, we just everybody everybody's forgiven and we just hang out together and it's we just so nice and I just Jesus says I'm just so sweet and I'm not going to really, really ask anything of you just however you want to live is fine with me that's just not what Christianity is guys now now here's the difference boy I'm really sidetracked right now um here's the difference what Jesus does that doesn't happen in the Old Testament is Jesus because of who he is and what he did made a way for us to be forgiven of our sins and to come into a relationship with the Father and to be indwelt with the Holy Spirit. So now the thing that's supposed to happen in our heart actually can happen in our heart because the Spirit is writing God's law in our heart and we're being changed at the level of motivation. So Jesus is saying, I'm raising the stakes, but through my Spirit, I'm actually going to give you the power to live the way that I've asked you to live. And then he, then he comes along and he says, uh, you, you know, I, I talk, talked last week about how that we learned the design for marriage and the foundation of the family in the first few chapters of Genesis. And I read a couple of scriptures around that. But Jesus comes along and not, not only does he support Uh, And quote from that text when he talks about marriage, but he 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 raises the importance of marriage by talking about how the divorce. He does this in the Sermon of the Mount is something that's only supposed to happen in for the most extreme reasons. I'm not going to get into the details of it. I'm trying to set a principle here. It's not like Jesus is saying whatever you do is okay. I'm okay. You're okay. Everything's fine. He's saying no. Remember my teachings. Keep my commandments. This is serious. He says, he says, in this case, marriage is so incredibly important that it's something really, really drastic has to happen in order for that covenant between a man and a wife to be broken. He raises it. Then, then, then he comes along and he says things that are just really, really, really hard, like like, love your enemies. He even says pray for them. And then he says, as if you're not already, you know, challenged enough, then he says Turn the other cheek. Walk the extra mile. Here's what a wise person does. A wise person says, a wise person claps for the truth and says, you know what? I'm going to fall on the rock. You know what? I'm going to try to figure out how you design things and my life is going to be shaped accordingly. I wonder if the numbers online just keep going down? Here's what <laughs> here, here here's what James said. James said he said, "Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says." Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, will be blessed in what they say. Listen, I'm going to run out of time and not be able to get to my next two points. I guess I have to get that next week. So I'll come to part of the challenge part here when I say, when is the last time? And I have been thinking about this, believe me, as it concerns my own life this week. When is the last time you read something in Scripture that was against the way you think or maybe the people you hang out with think and you changed your mind because of what Scripture says? When's the last time you heard someone teach Scripture and said something and I, I, I may have last week or today that, in in light of present cultural sensitivities, was kind of like a fingernail on chalkboard moment for you. But then you came back and asked the question, "What does God's word say? What is this teaching? What does this mean for me?" And you decided, instead of you know playing the role of the Proverbs says it's the mocker, the person who says, I already got this, I already know, I don't want to hear that. When's the last time you actually started examining some of your thoughts and positions? You weren't judging truth relative to our present culture, but you judge truth relative to. The ancient wisdom of scriptures, the way God designed the world, the way Jesus set things up, the consistent teachings of the Bible. This is the challenge for us. You know, and, and this concern, you know, can concern the big issues of life and things we face every day in the newspapers and all that stuff. And, 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 and I would, I think we should think about that. And if it sounds like I've hinted at some of those things the last couple of weeks, I have. But even more importantly, what does it mean when you read something like Jesus? I am so far off track right now, it is unbelievable. I'm just going to close the sermon, all right? I think I'm on page four of 11. That's how bad it is today. What was I saying? What about when Jesus says, When you, you hate a brother in your heart, you've committed murder. And, and in that same teaching, maybe I should just do a whole teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. That whole teaching, he says, then he comes around and he says, and then if you hear your, your brother is offended at you, don't come to church without going to your brother first and reconcile him. Do do we really believe that? Do we let our lives be shaped by that kind of thinking? This is difficult. This is real. And you say, well, what is this? Is this so we can be nice little Christians? Uh, This is about, this is how God designed the world to work. And if you want to live wisely, you You buy in. You really remember the teachings. You let your life be shaped by the teachings. Maybe I will at least offer the well-being of this first part because all I did was talk about the wise instruction. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. So what happens when we... When we remember his teachings and keep his commands. This is the loving Father saying, if you'll do that, let me tell you, what's, what's likely to happen in your life is this: you're gonna have a long life of peace and prosperity. He doesn't just say, Keep my commands because I want you to be good little boys and girls. Keep my commands because do I ever have great plans for you? And if you don't, you know, if you don't listen to me and do what I'm asking you to do, then I can't. You don't, you're not going to get the things that I want you to have. What I want you to have is I want you to have a long life of peace and prosperity. It's interesting. Tim Keller writes, and you guys can send the musicians out and all of that and whatever you need to do because I'm about to dismiss. So Tim, Tim Keller says that many of the behaviors in, in our recommended reading for this trimester, he says many of the behaviors promoted in Proverbs, marriage, work, prudence, emotional self-control are associated with longer lifespans. In fact, guys, um, very frequently, the approach I'll take when I'm making a point like this is I'll read studies, the latest social science, and say, you know, here's what Scripture says about, you know, being committed in a marriage, for instance. And when you're committed in a marriage, I mean, everybody's aware of these studies now, right? You, You literally... You, the, the statistics say you have a great probability of living considerably longer than someone who's not in in that kind of of uh, uh, covenant uh, relationship. Um, and not only that, but you're happier and you have a better possibility of when you're sick, you you get better quicker. And all. so 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 there there is a this isn't. It's I, I the Proverbs is written long before the social sciences, but it's God's word, it's God's truth. So you know the social sciences, when they do the studies properly, are gonna bear out what's true. And God says, hey, listen, if you'll do this my way, remember there's a proverb, not a promise. A proverb is, this is the way life was designed to work, and if you live wisely, you have a greater probability of... Uh, it's, it's not promising that someone could, can't die young. It's saying, it, God says if you, if you, if you live the way I called you to do, you, you know, the, the, the data will show that you have a, Greater probability of living a long life, and not only that, but living a long life full of peace and prosperity. What does peace mean? Well, we talk about this word a lot. It's the Hebrew word shalom. It's more than an absence of conflict. It's a bigger idea than that. It's everything in your life working together harmoniously as it was designed. Or as Tremper Longman defines it, a rich and meaningful existence. And not only do we get a long life and shalom, but we also get prosperity. And prosperity in the Old Testament, uh, by its actual definition, and and prosperity, I think the word prosperity is used in the Old Testament something like 65 times. I mean, it's a common referring uh, uh, threat. It's a shame. Sometimes people take extreme approaches to this position and kind of mess up the beauty of what prosperity really means. Prosperity has to do with our journey. It has to do with the path we're on. It has to do with getting to our destination. And prosperity is about the provision that God makes for us all along our journey. And so God says, he says, hey, son, hey, daughter, I love you so much that I wanna teach you some things. And and here's part of what I wanna teach you. Remember my teachings. Don't forget them. And keep my commands. Because if you do, you're gonna have a long life of peace and prosperity. And that's just the first of five things in Proverbs 3, 1 through 10. Again, I, I, I meant to get to three of those today, and I, I think that that's not going to happen. So I'm going to call it a day, and I'm going to come back next week, and this is really good news because I already have part of my sermon written next week, which is, Part of my motivation for stopping now. I'm kidding, it has nothing to do with it. And I'm going to come back and pick this up if you'll come and hear me. I hope that we can be people. Guys, this is fundamental to living life the way God meant for it to be lived. I hope we can be people who will clap for the truth and, and want the truth. And we'll let our lives be designed by the truth, not fit the truth into our own reality.